Uh, today's Palm Sunday. So in many churches, you might find like the waving of palm fronds, like this big celebration. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and that is good, and that is right to do. Um, here, we're going to keep going through our series through Genesis today, and the next week we'll have an Easter message. But our message today is Genesis 18 and 19. If you know your Bible really well, you know that is Sodom and Gomorrah. So happy Palm Sunday. Open your Bibles to Genesis 18. We've got a text that is a bit more serious and a bit more challenging, and, um, and we're going to open that up today. Uh, I love, I'm just, even before we jump into the text, I love that we are a church that depends on the Bible for the message that we need to hear. And, and so when we open to issues like the issues that we're going to hit today, we feel the safety of the scriptures, that we can just open them and present what God has taught us. And so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, Genesis 18, I'm going to start in verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. You can sense the urgency in their actions. And then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that had been prepared, and he set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Right, these first verses of chapter 18 are setting up what is about to happen in the next few chapters. Right, when God appears to Abraham, it tells us that in verse 1, he actually comes through these representatives of these three men. It's a little weird. The, the text goes singular and then plural. It sounds like he's talking to these three guys and then to God and God is speaking to him. Here's what we think is true, that these three men who potentially were these three angels were sent as representatives of God to Abraham. They were bringing a message. They were bringing a word that Abraham needed to hear. And Abraham understood, this is God coming to me. And so when God comes over, what do you do? You make a feast, right? You go out and you kill the calf and you make some bread and you put this big feast before God. And so that's what Abraham does. Cooks him a big meal and they sit down and they eat and we see what they say. Verse nine, where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. How many of you have been camping? Some of you, yeah. Tents don't block noise, right? Like a tent is just a piece of fabric. It doesn't do anything to noise. So Sarah is in the tent, but Sarah is listening. She is hearing what is being said. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. Am I worn out and my Lord is old? Will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why does Sarah laugh 
saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. And I love this part. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. And he replied, no, you did laugh. Just straight up, you're lying to me. You did. Remember, God had promised to Abraham and to Sarah. What did he promise? He said, you will have a great nation, this great lineage of descendants. Like your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He promised them that. In chapters 12 and 15, he reiterated that promise, but it hadn't happened yet. They weren't able to conceive a child yet. And so just a few chapters ago, they said, okay, it's not working for us. So Sarah says, well, here's Hagar, my slave. Why don't you go and have this great nation with her? That wasn't what God was intending. So he rebuked them and said, like, the promise was made to you, to you, Abraham, to you, Sarah. You will have a great nation come from you. And up until this point, that promise had been kind of generic, right? Many years had passed, and that promise hadn't come true yet. And so, here, so Sarah hears this more direct instruction. says, hey, within the year, it's going to happen. And Sarah laughs. She laughs. She doesn't believe him. I'm past the years of having kids. Look who I'm married to. He's old, like really old. Like this isn't going to happen. And, and here's what she's doing. Sarah is doubting the power of God. Sarah is doubting the ability of God to fulfill his promise, to keep his word. And so she laughs. Right now, before we go like too hard on Sarah for her lack of belief, right? We got to remember all through this book, we've been learning a lot about God. Right, we've seen what he has said and done, and we are learning about him. Abraham and Sarah are learning about him as well. They've just known him now for a number of years, and they're, they're learning what he has said. They have heard him speak and make promises, but they're still trying to figure out, can we trust him? Can we rely on him? When he makes a promise like that, will it come true? They're still learning that. We're still learning that. Or like you can read your Bible and see the things that God did and see the things that God said and read the things that God has promised to you. But it's an ongoing journey for us to learn. Can we trust him? Can we rely on him? Can we believe him? Right? If you're a newer believer in this room and you would like measure your relationship with God in just a few weeks or just a few months, if that's you today, here's my encouragement to you. Walk across the room. Find somebody who is much older than you. Maybe don't tell them that because they might get offended, but find somebody who is older than you that would measure their relationship with God in decades. Like there are people like that in this room. Find them and ask them, hey, this God that we're talking about, can I rely on him? Can I trust in him? And they will tell you story after story through really fun times, through really hard times of God's faithfulness and generosity and love towards them. God comes to Sarah, to Abraham, and says, next year, like next year, you're going to have a baby. See what happens next, verse 16. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. And then the Lord says, kind of a conversation among himself, right? The Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children 
and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. And then the Lord said, and and he decided, I'm going to tell Abraham. Verse 20, and then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. And their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. Verse 22, the men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? These 10 verses, I believe, are the reason that God came to Abraham. The reason that he sent these men and they sat before him. And these 10 verses... I believe they speak to an issue that, that we all care deeply about. It's the issue of justice. Justice. We all want justice, don't we? Like, isn't that something that we all hold in common is that we want justice. When we see something that is unjust, we want it to be fixed. We want it to be corrected and punished, right? And there are some injustices that are really obvious, that we would all immediately agree upon, right? If we walked out of this door after services today and there was some like 6'6", 280 pound dude just wailing on some woman or some child, every one of us would say that's not okay. And we would jump in and defend them. We would agree immediately, like that is not right. That is unjust. It would stir up like anger in us because we know deeply in us that's not okay. Some injustices are like that. They're obvious. They're easy to agree upon. Others aren't. It can create this tension in us, right? In the richest nation that this world has ever seen, there remains millions of people in poverty, and I think around half a million people are homeless. Is that an injustice? Or did a bunch of people make a bunch of bad choices? That is less clear maybe less obvious. There's a higher percentage of black Americans in prison than the percentage of white Americans. Is that an injustice? We all want justice, don't we? It is something that we all want, but sometimes what is just can be difficult to define. I looked up the definition of just this week and it didn't help. Here's the definition. Conforming to a standard of correctness, a standard of correctness. Whose standard? Yours? Mine? People that disagree entirely with our beliefs and our lifestyle? Like who gets to choose? Is it my political party that gets to define the standard of correctness or yours or somebody else's? Who gets to set that standard? Who gets to make that determination? And what happens when it's violated? What happens when it goes wrong? God has something to say about that. Read verse 19 again. 
Right? He's saying, for I, God, have chosen him, Abraham, so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what? Just. God is saying, you're wondering who gets to determine what is just and what is unjust? I do. I get to choose. I make that determination. He says, following my ways, that's right. That is just. Not following my ways, that is unjust. That is not right. And God's saying, I get to choose that. But here's what we also see in verse 19. God also desires and wants to see justice. He demands it more than even you and I do. He demands justice, and he is the one who gets to say what is right and what is just and what is unjust. And, and that's a lesson that Abraham's learning. Church, that might be a lesson that we need to be reaffirmed in today. In a culture that screams, nobody gets to tell me right and wrong. I just get to decide what I like, and that's right. And what I don't like, and that must be wrong. The Bible says something very different. God says, my ways, that's right, and that is just. Abraham finds himself in verse 25 asking this question. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? He's saying, God, I acknowledge you are the judge. You are, you created it, you're the judge, but will you do what is right? Will you do what is just? And here's God's answer. It's the next chapter and a half. It's what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah where God says, I am going to prove my justice. But before he does that, Abraham's got some questions. The rest of chapter 18, we see this dialogue between God and Abraham where Abraham says, well, you're gonna destroy the city. What if you find 50 righteous people? It surely wouldn't be just to like wipe them all out with all the wicked people, right? And God's like, okay, if we find 50 there, we won't destroy it. And Abraham, this is bold by the way, but Abraham says, well, what about 45? If you find 45 there, will you save them? And God's like, okay, I guess if we find 45 and then 40, and then 30, and he gets really bold. He's like, what about 10? If we find 10 righteous people, surely that would be wrong of you to kill these 10 righteous people for the sake of the unrighteous. And God says, yeah, that's fine. If we find 10 righteous people there, I won't destroy it. Now, it feels like Abraham just like bargained with God and like convinced him to do something different. Listen, that's not, that's not what happened. God actually used this little dialogue between him and Abraham to help Abraham see. God isn't some just angry, impulsive judge who can't wait to destroy people. That is not the character and the nature of God. He's not just ready to destroy, looking to pull that trigger and just blow everything up. He is patient and he is right and he is good. He is a good judge that would bring right justice. And Abraham now learned that. And he sees that. But let's look at what happened. Flip over to Genesis 19. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. All right, 
Stop here for just a second. We've got a new character kind of back in the picture. This guy named Lot, right? Do you remember Lot from a few chapters ago? He was Abraham's nephew. And we find him in Genesis 19, sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now, here's what was common in this time. There would be people sitting at the gates to the cities. And the people sitting there were often like people of influence and people of leadership. Sometimes judges would sit there. And people would come to them for rulings of what is right and what is wrong. Lot is sitting in a place of influence in the city of Sodom. Now, how did he get there? How did he get there? We haven't seen him for a few chapters. And so I want to actually go backwards and show you how he got there. Back in chapter 13, Abraham and Lot are going to separate. They're gonna, they decide to live apart from each other. Abraham says, go wherever you want to. Pick a place. You can have it. I'll go the other way. And here's where we see uh, Lot go. Genesis 13, verse 12. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. And then verse 13 gives us context for Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Lot set up his tent where? Near Sodom. All right, he didn't, He didn't go inside of the city. He wasn't living in the city, but he set up his tent near Sodom, this place that was known for evil and wickedness. And he put his tent, not in it, but right next to it. Bad idea. Bad idea, right? For you and for me, if we know there is an immense sin happening anywhere and we're like, well, I'm not gonna go in. I'm just gonna get right next to it. Bad idea. It's a bad idea. In chapter 14, there is a battle that happens between some kings and the winning like king and his forces, they take Lot as plunder. And it says in 14, they take him because he was living in Sodom. Chapter 13, he's in a tent outside. Chapter 14, he's in Sodom. No surprise. When you camp right next to sin, you're gonna find yourself in it. And that's what happened to Lot. And he gets captured, he gets taken away. Abraham hears about it, goes and rescues him, brings him back to the land of Canaan. Fast forward to our text again, chapter 19, where's Lot? He's back in Sodom again. He keeps going back. Because in the New Testament, when being referenced, Lot is called a righteous man. And so I'm going to believe that Lot was a righteous man, but he is making some really dumb decisions. This is a really bad idea because we find him in the city, in the city full of sin. Keep reading, verse four. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Verse nine says, get out of the way. They said, this one, talking about Lot, this one came as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and they came up to break down the door. In those few verses, we are given a window into the evil and the wickedness that exists in this city. It's perversion, the injustice that was being done that generated this outcry to the Lord. 
Right earlier, God said, like, there's been this outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm hearing about this sin. I'm going to go look at it. I'm going to go investigate it. This is what was causing the outcry. It says that the whole population of Sodom was at the gate. And we now see why God had no problem in that conversation with Abraham. What if there's 50 righteous? What if there's 40 righteous, 30 righteous? God knew there weren't that many. They weren't there. The whole city had turned towards evil and towards sin. And they are banging on the door, demanding that Lot would sacrifice these men to the demands of their perversion and their wickedness. But Lot wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. I don't fully know how to explain Lot's response, right? Some people that I read when studying this text said Lot didn't actually offer his daughters because that would be evil. That would be wicked. But that Lot actually didn't offer his daughters in a real way, but he put out this ridiculous scenario to try to wake them up and shock them into realizing what they were doing, to try to stir their consciences just a little bit to say, this isn't okay. This isn't worth it. This isn't right. And so Lot won't let him in. And these guys get mad at him. And they even say, you saw this, like, like, you're trying to be our judge, but you're not our judge. Or just the first recorded instance of somebody saying, well, you can't judge me. Right? That's a phrase that has been repeated a whole lot of times since then. Right? Who are you to judge me? You can't judge me. And ultimately, guys, they were right. Like, Lot couldn't judge them. But where they were mistaken is believing that there was anybody who could. They didn't think anybody could judge them. But their injustice, their perversion, their wickedness demanded judgment. And that judgment was coming. It's coming. It has to. Read verses 10 and 11. But the angels reached out brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And then they struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness so that they were unable to find the entrance. These men were about to knock down the door. And so the angel like reached out, struck them with blindness. And so they're fumbling around and couldn't even find the door. It's actually kind of an ironic, funny scene. They're just scrambling, trying to find the door and they can't see anything. This miracle, supernatural act of God in this moment. And so these angels who just did this miracle of giving blindness to the evil ones turns and says to Lot, let's get out of here. Grab your family. Let's get out of here. This place is about to be destroyed. But here's what's crazy about this text. Lot tells his sons-in-law, hey, this place is about to be destroyed. Let's leave it. Let's flee from it. And it says in this text, they mocked him. They laughed at him. They didn't want this rescue that was being offered. They wanted their sin. They wanted that life. But here's maybe what's even crazier. Look at Lot's response in verse 16. But he, Lot, hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him and left him outside of the city. But he hesitated. He was just rescued from the hands of this angry mob by these angels who make them go blind. And now they say, let's go. And he hesitates. He waits. He's unsure if he really wants to leave. He's not 
sure if he wants to go away from this city, from these people, from this wickedness. There's this urge and this draw to stay there. Right, but the angels, they don't really give him a choice. They grab his hand and they pull him out of the city. But look what happens down in verse 26. It says, his wife looked back. And the more accurate translation is not like they're running and she glanced back, but it's they're running and she looked and then she slowed down and then she stopped and then she turned and then she said, yeah, I'm going back here. I'm going to choose that city. I'm going to choose that sin. I'm going to choose that evil rather than rescue. And can we be honest? Like that action of Lot's wife is just a depiction of the unexplainable allure of sin, isn't it? Blatant injustice, gross perversion, and for some reason, Lot's wife was enticed by it. She wanted it. She chose it. But here's the thing. I wish that was only true of her. I wish that wasn't true of me. Sin in its ugliness shows up in our life and we're frustrated by it. We should be. We're disappointed in ourselves, rightfully. We could be disgusted by our sin, and we should be, right? And, and we can have this resolve and this commitment, like, I will never again do that. You've probably said that, right? Like, I will never again do that. Until that image pops up, until that opportunity rears its ugly head once again, and then for whatever reason that we can't explain, we, we look and we think and we're drawn to it, we're enticed by it. That is the allure that sin has. I'll feel the, the confrontation from my wife when she challenges me to be more intentional with my kids. I wish it wasn't a regular conversation, but it seems to be, right? And I'll be dis disappointed in myself. I'll be frustrated with myself. I'll be committed next time. I'm going to win next time. And then the next time shows up, and I'd rather take a nap. I'd rather play that stupid game on my phone that I'm really good at, and I got a really high score, that's the truth about sin. It draws us in. It did for Lot. He hesitated. He wasn't sure if he wanted to go. His wife turned back. She went. And here's what she found when she went back. Verse 24. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. He wiped it out. He brought justice fully and swiftly. And then he would use the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from that point on as the pinnacle of evil and what God would do when he brings righteousness and justice. Sodom and Gomorrah, this little incident in chapter 19, it takes up only about like 30 verses in the narrative of the Bible, and yet it has been the example and the pinnacle that's been looked at ever since then, right? When I mentioned at the beginning today that we had Sodom and Gomorrah, many of you knew, uh-oh, people are going to die. Like there's going to be judgment. 28 times Sodom is referenced in the Bible after this text, every single one of them, God uses Sodom as the pinnacle of evil. Wickedness, perversion in all ways existed in this place. But specifically, 
the city of Sodom and, and Gomorrah were given a window into specific sin that existed in these places. It's what Sodom was known for. Way forward in the New Testament, in the book of Jude, verse 7, we see a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah again. Look at, look at verse 7. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sexual immorality and perversions. The other word to translate that perversions word means um, to, to go after other flesh or unnatural flesh. He's speaking to the issue of homosexuality, forsaking the design and the command of God for men and women to experience intimacy in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. Now, Genesis 19 is not where God fully unpacks his views on this issue, but he goes there. He starts it. And so when we as a church come to texts like this one, we have to talk about it. We have to present not what we think, not what we wish were true, to present what God says is true about issues like these. And, and listen, before we even jump into some more scripture, no, this isn't easy to talk about. It's not comfortable to talk about. It can be challenging emotionally, relationally, but we are committed to the words of scripture and we want you and beg of you, be committed to the words of scripture. So what does the Bible say? In Genesis 19, our text, the people of Sodom are called evil and wicked and they all get wiped off of the face of the earth. And the sin that is mentioned specifically about the people of Sodom is this issue of homosexuality. Later on in Leviticus, in chapters 18 and 20, God is setting the way forward for his chosen people that he loves. And he says, this is the law. This is what's best for you. This is how you will flourish. This is what I expect. And he makes it abundantly clear. Same-sex relationships are not allowed. They are not permitted. In fact, they warrant the same punishment that came to the people of Sodom. The punishment was death. But you might be thinking like, that's, that's the God of the Old Testament. He was really mean back then. He just killed people all the time. Like, what does the New Testament have to say about this issue? Well, there are many texts that address this issue. I'm just gonna pick one of them, but listen, they're all saying the same thing and they're all consistent. But I, I grabbed some from 1 Corinthians 6. Let me read these to you. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And the instruction in, the, in this verse is people who live this way, who pursue a life like this, they will not inherit God's kingdom. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? It's pretty straightforward. It's because God has been very clear, very clear. Sexual intimacy between anyone other than a man and a woman in marriage, it's sin. It's sin. And sin requires punishment. Why? Why? Because that's justice. Right? That is the justice of God, that when we break his commands, when we break his laws, that we're punished for it. But you might say, 
and many have, who says he gets to be the judge? Who says he gets to make the rules? Say what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. I don't have time to fully unpack that for you today, but here's, here's a few things. Some we've already seen in the book of Genesis, that he establishes himself as the creator and as the authority. But here's just the short version that I'll give you. And we can talk more later if you want to. Here's the short version. He created all of this by speaking. Out of nothing came this world and the humans that are on it. He created every bit of it. And so he gets to be the one in authority. He gets to be the judge, right? And, and if you happen to or have the opportunity to, by just speaking words, create another world with another set of people, by all means, you can be the judge of that one. But church, the world that we live in is the one that he has created. It's the world that he loves with his prized creation, people, us, me, you. And he says, I I know what's best for you. I know how you will flourish. I know how you will be happy, how you will enjoy this life. And he said, this is what's right. And this is what's just. Like Abraham, he already acknowledged it, right? He already said, yep, God, I'm going to give you that fact. You're the judge. But how do I know if you'll be just? And God says, by punishing sin, that's how you'll know. When there's a wrong, I'll right it. When there's an injustice, I will bring justice. See, church, God makes his expectations about sexuality very clear. But can we for just a moment admit that historically the church has been awful in treating these issues rightly? Can we just admit that? Right, because it it can be common, or it is often that we will fall in one of two ditches as the church talking about this issue. And here's one ditch. That sin, ooh. That sin, how dare you? That sin, that is so bad. I, I don't know quite if God can save that. I don't know if you have a place here in the church. Like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. We see that as something that is intolerable. Something that we just, let's just not talk. Let's, can you just go somewhere else? I bet there's another place for you. The church has treated people with this struggle in that way, wrongfully, sinfully. But there's another ditch. And this is a ditch that I think we're, we're trending towards right now, which is just like, let's just not talk about it. Let's just, culture seems to be kind of winning that battle. Let's just not talk about it. God is about love, right? So you do you, love whomever you want. We're just gonna avoid it. And here's the truth. God is all about love, but one of the most loving things that he does is rebuke us when we're wrong and point us back to the way of righteousness and purity and holiness. God loves us so much that he will do that. But we can be honest for a moment, the church has been bad at this issue. We wanna fix that. We wanna be different than that. I recognize that there are likely sitting in this room some of you that are struggling with same-sex attraction And you might be wondering, like, is Salt Church a place that's just going to shame me and condemn me and be against me? You might feel isolated and uncomfortable, and some of that comes from bad church experiences. Hear this from me. Hear this, church. We love you, and we are for you, and we want to walk with you towards the beauty of Jesus, the forgiveness that he offers towards a path of purity and holiness. Just like we do with every other person sitting in this room struggling with something else. 
Right? Did you notice that this sin of homosexuality, it wasn't the only sin listed in this passage, was it? Read through these again with me. And again, this passage is talking about a lifestyle pursuing these issues, pursuing these struggles. He says, do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people lust after someone who isn't your wife and do that often, you fail. Bunch of single people in the room. Have you experienced lust? You fail. Bunch of married people in the room. Do you experience lust with somebody that's not your spouse? You fail that. Idolaters. If you've placed your job, your house, your grades, your relationships, your hobbies, your family, your own comfort, if you have placed that priority above God, ahead of God, over him, if that is your life, 1 Corinthians 6 puts you in this category. You fail. Thieves. If you've ever stolen a pen or a dollar or you tell your company you're working but you're not actually, that is stealing in a lifestyle of stealing doesn't get you to the kingdom. Greedy people, greedy people. Do I need to give examples for that one, right? Do you hoard your money and your possessions and do you work really hard to make more money and have more possessions? You fail this. Drunkards, abusing, being addicted to alcohol or drugs. You fail this. Verbally abusive people, berating somebody, cussing them out, tearing them down, being rude, being disrespectful. If that is your life, you fit in this verse. And what does it say at the end? Those will not inherit the kingdom. So if you are struggling with same-sex attraction, welcome to the group of people who's struggling right with you in a whole bunch of ways failing over and over again because there is no way that a person can be sitting in this room apart from the work of Jesus in their life and say, I think I'm good. I punched my ticket to heaven. Like I didn't violate any of those. Apart from the work of Jesus in our lives, we are destined not for heaven, for hell. And so if you struggle with same-sex attraction, and you wonder how this church will treat you, know this, we are gonna treat you like we're gonna treat everybody in the midst of this struggle. We are gonna stand in front of you and hold out for you the beauty and the mercy of Jesus who wants to save you, forgive you, and heal you, and restore you, and bring you back to him, to follow him in purity, to deny that fleshly desire that is in all of us because we want evil. Let's just admit it. We want that. Our flesh wants that. But by the power and the grace of Jesus, we can deny that and run and walk in purity. Look at verse 11 in 1 Corinthians 6. And if you've chosen to follow Jesus, if your faith is placed in him, he is talking about you like this. Some of you used to be like this, living this lifestyle in this way, but you were washed you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Like that is good news for me and for you. And we can turn and run towards him. Sodom and Gomorrah, they stand in history as the epitome of evil and as the ones who rightly received the punishment that they deserved. And the God of the Old Testament that did that is the same God in the New Testament, is the same God today, and he is still just as committed to justice. He demands it. He will make sure that it is done. Even to the point, hear this, 
even to the point of pouring out the full extent of his wrath on his own son, Jesus, because your sin and my sin had to be punished. It had to be, right? Otherwise, he would not be a good judge. That fictional story of the dude outside beating a woman, let's say tragically it ended in death. And that man went before a judge to be sentenced. What would happen if the judge said, I'm just gonna look the other way. I'm just gonna act like it didn't happen. I'm just gonna let you off with no punishment. Everybody would cry out, that is not justice. And God looks at me and you and he sees our sin and he can't just look the other way. He can't just act like it didn't happen. But what he can do and what he did do is to send his son Jesus to say, they can't take this punishment. I'm, I'm gonna have you take it. I'm gonna have you receive it. So that's what Jesus did. Read one more time with me, verse 16. We'll close with this. Verse 16, the last half of it, because of the Lord's compassion for him, for Lot, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside of the city. That phrase, because of the Lord's compassion for him. They grabbed his hand and they pulled him to safety. Salt Church, the same is true today for you and for me. If you're a non-believer who has never thought about repentance because you didn't know something was wrong, or if you're a long-time believer struggling with the sin in your life and the temptations that you have, know this today. God is reaching out his hand and promising safety. He's promising hope and life. Grab that hand today. Hold tightly to Jesus and his work on the cross. Turn from your sin. Run towards safety and the joy and the hope and the peace that God offers to you. Don't look back. Don't hesitate. Let's run to Jesus. In Genesis 18, Abraham wondered, God, will you be just? He asked that question. Will a just judge do that? And God says, watch, watch. I'm gonna punish Sodom and Gomorrah because they deserve it because the outcry of sin against them is immense. And so he went and he punished Sodom and Gomorrah and he rescued Lot. And in that action, he proved to Abraham and proved to me and proved to you, God is committed to justice. And if our God is committed to justice, then you and I should be too. But listen, before we go running out of this room, screaming about all the injustice in the world, and there is plenty, and we as a church should stand up to that, we should. But before we go do that, we should be on our knees thanking God that, that while we deserved what Sodom received, we actually got what Jesus deserved, not what we deserved. That should put us on our knees in humility and worship today. And so I hope that's what that does. So pray with me that the Spirit would work in that way.